You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 9th of January 2024 on Monaco Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, we look at the likelihood of the Israeli-Palestine conflict escalating across the region as the US Secretary of State continues his talks to rein in the possibility. We'll cross to Seoul, where the opposition is fracturing ahead of the April election. Then, Monocle's senior foreign correspondent, Carlotta Rabello, is here. What do you have for us today, Carlotta? Hi, Georgina. Portugal's upcoming election campaign is starting to take shape. Today we'll be taking a look at the new leader of the Socialists who has pledged to increase the minimum wage and boost the economy and we'll also examine a new coalition formed on the right. More from Carlotta coming up. And also in the programme, an aviation news roundup including the latest on Boeing's travails. Plus, what are the political risks in 2024? The UN Director at the International Crisis Group, Richard Gowan, has some answers. The structures of global governance are getting less attention because there is a tendency to focus on what's urgent and, you know, on the doorstep back home. And finally, we'll look ahead to the World Economic Forum's annual meeting at Davos. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, to look at what else is happening in the news. Canada, Britain, Sweden and Ukraine formally complained to the United Nations Aviation Council on Monday in their bid to hold Iran accountable for the downing of a passenger airliner in January 2020 that killed 176 people. German farmers kicked off a week of nationwide protests against subsidy cuts yesterday, blocking roads with tractors and piling misery on Chancellor Olaf Schulz's coalition as it struggles to fix a budget mess and contain rising far-right forces. And Bhutan began voting today in the final round of national parliamentary elections that will form the Himalayan Kingdom's fourth government since democracy was established 15 years ago, with economic growth the main issue. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, Iran's proxies are attacking Israel from many different points. The country's nuclear program has been revived and Tehran has the support of Russia and China. The US is very aware of this and concerned about a broader conflict. Top diplomat Antony Blinken is currently touring the region, focusing on preventing escalation as tensions mount between Lebanon and Israel along their shared border. Well, I'm joined now by Nick Gowing, a distinguished fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, founder of the Thinking the Unthinkable Project and former international news broadcaster with the BBC and ITN. Nick, it's great to have you back on the programme. Saudi Arabia, where the Secretary of State visited yesterday, is important to any discussion of regional contagion. Do we know what Blinken wanted from the Saudis and did he get it? Nothing uh, briefed yet uh, on this. The Saudis are very important. The um, Americans have been working on supporting the Saudis in their efforts to rebuild relations with Israel. They were on a knife edge when everything happened on October the 7th. And so the KSA, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and particularly Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, are seen as pivotal, not least because part of the negotiation was 
before all this happened was about the role of the Palestinians and the guarantee of a two-state solution. Obviously, that is now very much uh, uh, destroyed in many people's minds. But the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is very critical in all of this, not least because, not just because of Israel, but because of what's happened with, with uh, Yemen, with the Houthis. And the Saudis have been at war with the Houthis, who are Iranian-backed in Yemen for the last eight years, and they're trying to disengage from that. And so this is a much bigger play we're seeing here, Georgina. We're seeing war essentially emerging on four fronts in Gaza, in Lebanon, in Syria and in Yemen. And the KSA, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, could play a critical part in all of that, both politically and financially. And is there a readout uh, of what MBS and Blinken discussed and, and whether they are any further forward to what role Saudi Arabia might actually end up playing? I have seen nothing yet, uh, apart from a very brief statement that they'd actually met. Uh, let's have a look at Israel's northern border with Lebanon. We understand an elite unit commander was killed in southern Lebanon yesterday. Uh, and so far, these strikes uh, have been confined to a few kilometres into the country. What do you think the likelihood is that Israel would launch a preemptive strike into the heart of Lebanon? I'm afraid that we're moving in that direction. Uh, Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, said very clearly yesterday that Israel is ready for a bigger conflict against Hezbollah. Now, essentially, the Lebanese government and the Lebanese army uh, under uh, UN Security Council resolutions are meant to guarantee the security of, of that border. That goes back to 2006, which is when there was the last big war, the 36-day war between uh, Lebanon uh, and Israel. And uh, these, the Lebanese government gave that guarantee. Now, that's pointless at the moment because the Lebanese government is in crisis, the country's in crisis, and Hezbollah is a massive force which is equipped not just with manpower but also a significant arsenal of thousands and thousands of, of various kinds of missiles. Mm. I mean, many analysts say that Israel is too thinly stretched to mount another offensive. I, I wonder if Netanyahu cares and if this is now more about self-preservation and if there are any voices of reason within his cabinet who might prevent this. Well, um, let me just pick up that first point you make about uh, about how stretched the Israelis are. Um, they are deeply committed with reservists, up to three hundred and sixty thousand down in Gaza, and then up in up in the north. Uh, I don't have figures, and the Israeli defense forces would never concede what the, the numbers are. They are committed significantly there as well, and they've opened up the Syrian front potentially by the uh, attack yesterday on Hassam Hakashar, mm. who is uh, from uh, Hamas, who was a central figure uh, in rocket launching in Gaza. So they've opened another front uh, in 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 Syria potentially using drones, of course, and and finally what what is happening in Yemen. So you have to look at them and, and say even if they're well um, equipped to produce force into these areas, doing it all at the same time is potentially quite damaging and potentially quite vulnerable for, for the whole Israeli community and the whole Israeli government and the whole Israeli nation. I wonder what it would take for Iran to weigh in in the conflict. Well, this comes back to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, because remarkably in March of uh, last year, 10 months ago, they uh, rebuilt diplomatic relations with between uh, Riyadh 
uh, and Tehran, uh, helped by uh, brokered by the Chinese, oddly enough. And so, what the what uh, the kingdom was trying to do was rebuild a, a form of dialogue, and that uh, generated a significant set of progress. Uh, what uh, alarmed the West was that the Americans and certainly British intelligence didn't really know what was going on, and the kingdom built the new relationship with Iran. Iran, a sworn enemy of, of Saudi Arabia, not least because of the number of t attacks on, on, on oil facilities and so on, and also what's going on uh, in, in, um, uh, in Yemen. So uh, Iran is a key player in this so far, and I emphasize that, Georgina, so far, they have indicated they only want a limited set of uh, developments uh, militarily and when it comes to uh, use of uh, military force. Yet Hezbollah, um, has this significant capacity within southern Lebanon, which is exceeds really what the Lebanese government can do. And so you have to ask, uh, that's why your question is so important. Will they promote, will they encourage Hezbollah to start attacking Israel? 80,000 people in the north of Israel have now been evacuated uh, simply because of the danger from the missiles. So Iran does play a very important part, a critical part in all of this. And that opens the, the question about what is going to happen in the Gulf with the UAE with Bahrain and, and other countries there. I mean, could we see other Arab nations becoming more involved? I think we could. Um, everyone, this is now, as I said, it's a, it's a Rubik's Cube where everyone has a national interest. We mustn't forget, forget Egypt as well. Egypt is quite vulnerable politically. They've just had an election. Sisi's been uh, re-elected as the president. Uh, but they have the threat of two 2.3 million people coming uh, across the border from Gaza, which the Egyptians have made very clear they don't want to do. But uh, this this raises another big big question. I think if I if I can that in the Hague this week, uh, the South Africa is actually uh, launching a genocide appeal um, in the World Court uh, against Israel because of what Israel is doing in uh, in Gaza, even though um, they, they've been under pressure to not in any way uh, think of uh, essentially evicting the Palestinians from Gaza. There, there is real fear that what uh, is driving Netanyahu, and this is the answer to your previous question, um, what is driving Netanyahu is a determination to crush the Palestinian presence in Gaza and push it over the border into Egypt. Mm. And I mean, this ICC uh, hearing is, is very important. Uh, I mean, particularly yes. when you look at, uh, at Israel, which I think was one of the, the founding members of, of this particular yes, part of legislation. Yes, that was in 1948. Um, and I should remind you that genocide, quote, is about acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial or religious group. The De Genocide Convention um, ob ob obliged not only uh, not to commit genocide, but also to prevent and punish it. Now, uh, I'm not a lawyer. And there'll be 15 lawyers uh, when the case opens this week uh, in The Hague uh, who will listen to this. Uh, the Israelis have been brutal in their rejection, saying that this is all baseless, uh, accusing South Africa of absurd blood libel. So one can't imagine that this is going to move smoothly. And in any case, it'll take some time, given the way uh, legal uh, processes work. But it shows the opening of a, of a real new front, which is what is re Israel really up to with a very right wing government, the coalition government? government and a determination to use Prime Minister Netanyahu's word to eliminate every enemy of Israel. Mm. Uh, and Nick, before you go, I mean, we're talking about regional contagion, but in the event of Iran being drawn into the war, could it expect backup from China and Russia? 
Well, Russia has already got significant relationship with Iran because Iran is supplying uh, a lot of the uh, drones which are being used in the Ukraine operation. So a bigger, um, a, a bigger, um, a bigger relationship is emerging between uh, Moscow and Tehran. I think, I think at the moment, and I'm being cautious here, I think at the moment Iran wants to keep this under control, but they do have a problem, as I said uh, earlier, with Hezbollah who are, are champing at the bit. And that is why Israel has taken action against two major commanders, two senior commanders in, inside Lebanon and another one now in Syria. But I think China, given China was part of the brokering arrangement for building a new relationship between Iran and Saudi Arabia in March, of uh, last year, I think uh, their role could be interesting, but I have no more to guide you on that, apart from the fact that they are involved already in, in significant ways. Nick, thank you very much indeed. That's Nick going there. And this is The Globalist. South Korea will hold a general election in April, but the opposition is deeply divided. The party leader, Lee Jae-myung, who's currently recovering from surgery following a knife attack in January, is accused of making the Democratic Party his own private fiefdom. An injunction has been filed against him, accusing Lee of breaches of trust, bribery and other charges. Many political heavyweights are now leaving the party, including former leader and ex-Prime Minister Lee Nak-yong. Well, I'm joined now by the staff writer for Nikkei Asia in Seoul. That's Stephen Borovic. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, Steve, what has Lee Jae-myung said about this? Uh, He has maintained that the charges and all these allegations against him are politically motivated, that he has not really done anything wrong, and that this is all part of a kind of political vendetta by the administration of President Yoon Seok-yeol. Yoon is a former prosecutor and the kind of political camp that Lee belongs to, the the left-leaning, uh, the generation that led the country in democratization movements in the late 1980s has for decades had a very antagonistic relationship with the prosecution service. So Lee has definitely framed what's happened to him uh, quite firmly in that context, and he is arguing that these organs of the state are attacking him for political reasons. But what is really complicating things for Lee is that, you know, whether – to whatever extent that might be true, to whether there might be a political motivation, it is certainly having real political effects on his party, and it's drawing a lot of negative attention to his party ahead of what you mentioned are some quite key legislative elections coming up. So tell us about the effect on the party, because we've got some pretty senior leaders saying they're going to leave and perhaps even set up a new party. Yeah, well, it's it's just drawing to have the leader of the party having to attend regular court hearings and having to be accused of some pretty hot button stuff, things like corruption, you know, in a country that is very sensitive to a sense of growing inequality and a sense that the elite does not really have the interests of regular people in mind and they're kind of, you know, sort of acting on their own behalf and doing things that are irresponsible, having the leader of the party uh, caught up in something like that casts a very negative light on the party at the exact time that they're trying to appeal to voters. So for quite some time, for for months, really, members of Leave Party have been asking him to relinquish his leadership position because they want to get somebody else to be the kind of face of the party because they think that will help them 
improve their image and, and cast themselves as a, a more responsible party that is looking out for the, the general well-being of society. But uh, Lee has shown no sign that he's, he's looking to step down. Mm. And, and what about this new party and various bigwigs going off to start it? How many Democratic Party representatives uh, plan to leave and, 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 and would they join a new party? I believe it's seven who have who have given a kind of ultimatum, and they've said that uh, if Lee does not voluntarily resign by tomorrow, that they would step down. Uh, Lee Nang Young, who you mentioned earlier, he's not actually a sitting lawmaker. He's a kind of a stalwart and elder statesman of the party. So he, if they were to form this new party, he would probably be in a leadership position, and he would give this new party a kind of legitimacy and a kind of recognizable face. Uh, complicating all of this is this... Uh, relatively young former conservative leader named Lee Jung-suk has floated the possibility of forming his own party, and he's alluded to reaching across the ideological spectrum to these ruling, uh, these opposition party lawmakers, and he's floated the idea that they could team up and present a kind of third-party alternative during the elections, but that would be quite difficult. It remains to be seen just how much of that will come to fruition. The elections are in April. Could any new party be in a position to contest them? Uh, well, you never know in this country's politics. Uh, things move very quickly. Uh, but just it would it would probably come down to uh, a matter of name recognition and of having the right kinds of you know attractive candidates and the right kinds of very pivotal writings and things like that. It would be a, a lot of work, but I wouldn't I've learned not to uh, bet against the unexpected happening in this country's politics. I mean, there does seem to be an increased willingness to to use smear tactics and even violence to further political aim. Uh, I wonder if you could give us a bit more information on that. I don't know if it's new uh, or I don't know if it's new or if it's if it's an increase on the way that it used to be. I mean, the, you know, we're speaking a couple of weeks after this very vicious attack on Lee Jae Myung, where a political antagonist stabbed him in the neck. Uh, fortunately, he just missed his corduroy artery, and, and Lee is expected to recover. But, uh, you know, these kinds of things have happened before. Politicians have been attacked in public places before. And the two sides of the country's political spectrum have a, a long history of quite bitter fighting over the, the mechanisms of control. And it's not new for them to paint the other side as being, you know, whether it's anti-state or it's corrupt or it's whatever it happens to be. Uh, one can only hope that uh, the violent attack on Lee will show both political parties, like just how much is at stake and just how bad things can get if you spread, you know, antagonistic or insulting or false information about somebody online. There are people out there who will really act on this in the most extreme of ways, so it's best to tread carefully. Uh, and finally, Steve, what are polls saying? Have there been recent polls, and what do the South Korean people want? The polls are pretty... Uh, the, the poll data that refers specific, specifically to political party is, is pretty evenly split between the the ruling party and the, the main opposition party. There's not a, a really strong... I think uh, voters are leaning somewhat towards the opposition party, but it's it's not a commanding lead. Uh, interesting thing is that for all the uh, division in the main opposition party, they are still operating from something of a position of strength because they 
already control a lot of seats in the legislature, and President Yoon has not been very popular. His his approval ratings have been really quite low throughout his term, and he doesn't have a kind of signature achievement that he can point to when he can say that this is why uh, he ought to have a stronger mandate from voters. He's been really doubling down on bread and butter issues and talking about things like uh, the cost of living and uh, increased government support for vulnerable groups and transit and things like that. Uh, It'll remain to be seen just how much that resonates with voters, though. Steve Borovic in Seoul. Thank you very much indeed. This is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It is 7.20 here in London. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio with me, Georgina Godwin. And we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is geopolitical strategist and founder of Fordham Global Insights, Tina Fordham. Welcome, Tina. Morning. Uh, Let's start with Lloyd Austin. Now, he's been very ill. He's been in intensive care. But we found out yesterday that, in fact, none of his colleagues knew. Uh, Now, uh, Politico has a story following this. Yes, I mean the the unfortunate thing, besides what it suggests for the for the health of a, a very influential person in this time of of conflict and uh, security challenges, is it's feeding into a narrative in the United States that President Biden isn't really in charge, um, and so I think the the implications of, of this. Um, are going to be uh, wider than perhaps the headline might suggest. First of all, why didn't Secretary Austin let his boss, the U.S. president, know that not only was he ill, but he was in intensive care, um, given the uh, importance and seniority of his role? And what does Biden do as a result of this? Um, Lloyd Austin is also the first African-American Secretary of Defense. And so um, I I think that this story will start to, to take on more significance as we head into the the full throes of the U.S. election campaign. Mm. I mean, the Politico headline is that Biden wouldn't accept an Austin resignation if it was offered. Is that even on the table? Well, that reminds me of the of the kind of the classic line in, in Yes Minister, you know, that suggests that whenever someone's um, resignation is even, even mentioned, that, um, a, you know, the denial story is something that's actually about to happen. I think it's unlikely that um, Secretary Austin will offer his resignation. But again, um, it, it puts Biden in an awkward position. Mm. Biden, of course, in an awkward position anyway, particularly uh, over everything that's going on in the Middle East. Now, Iran has vowed to target more enemy ships in global waters. That's something that does impact the US. Uh, let's have a look at what Reuters says about that particular story. Well, I, I I think that this story is interesting because there's so many contradictory headlines at the moment. And of course, in my role, I advise investors and companies about um, geopolitical developments. And what you see on the one hand from the Iranian diplomatic establishment is a clear signal that they don't want to escalate the conflict. And yet, um, we have here in this Reuters piece uh, a vow to target more uh, ships in in the Red Sea, one of the world's major shipping channels, and to me this highlights, I think, a, a disconnect between the sense that the Israel-Hamas war 
will remain contained to Israel and the Palestinian territories, when in fact it's actually escalating all the time, mm-hmm. whether it's attacks on Hezbollah leaders um, or indeed the, the shipping traffic in the Middle East. So in terms of conflicts to watch, I really think the risks of Middle East escalation are more significant um, than uh, the kind of official diplomatic rhetoric suggests. Mm. And of course, it's having huge economic uh, impact as well, because shipping is having to go the long way around via Cape Town. That's right. And that's adding time, uh, significant time. I think it's at least 10 to 12 days into the journey. Um, we had some back and forth from, from Maersk, one of the leading um, global shippers about it was, you know, resuming uh, traffic through the Red Sea. Um, and that's also, you know, leading to some suggestions that is, is this really another Suez crisis in the making? And if you know your history, you know that that wasn't necessarily a good thing for the economy. And that's, of course, what geopolitical risk monitoring is all about, uh, especially in a time when a lot of enthusiasm about avoiding a recession is about impending interest rate cuts. Geopolitical risks are the thing that could change that. Mm. Now, we've been following Taiwan's elections. Of course, they're coming up. Uh, They've entered the final stretch now. Uh, And of course, the outcome of this election on on January the 13th will play a crucial role in shaping the island's relationship with China. Uh, Tell us uh, what more we have on this. Well, um, we know that this is a year of massive elections, more people going to the polls than at any other time in in human history. And uh, we're coming straight out of the the box in the new year with elections in Taiwan. In the best of times, the polling data uh, on Taiwanese elections tends to be um, not not the best. And even in good times, let's remember that polling data is three to five percentage points off. So when we look at the outlook for the polls, the ruling DPP candidate, um, the incumbent, is coming in around 35%. He is the favorite. That's Vice President Lai uh, Chin. But um, 29% for the KMT, 24% for the PP, 12% undecided. That's a big um, uh, kind of margin for error. And, of course, we care about what happens in Taiwan, um, not just because of the reasons why the Taiwanese do, uh, unemployment and housing prices and the usual domestic issues, but because Beijing is going to be watching this result very closely. And all of the candidates in these um, leading parties have voiced opposition to the One China policy. So in an environment where we've got hot wars in the Middle East between Russia and Ukraine, Um, the outcome of the January 13th Taiwan elections is a major signpost in the geopolitical risk climate. Uh, Turning our gaze to Europe, Le Monde tells us that the EU Council President uh, Charles Michel is going to step down early. Why is that? Uh, It's because he wants to run in the June European parliamentary elections. Now, the thing about European uh, Union politics is that they're quite dull. Um, That's part of the modus operandi, I think, of Europe. Somebody once described European politics to me as moving uh, slowly like an iceberg and flattening everything um, in its path. So why should anyone care that Charles Michel uh, wants to run in European parliamentary elections? Well, the reason why it's interesting and significant and potentially problematic uh, is because, according to the rules of the European Council, 
in the event that the incumbent is not able to uh, stay in the role, it goes to the country, the leader of the country holding the European Council um, rotating presidency. And that is leading naughty step um, Hungarian President Viktor Orban, who has broken norms as well as rules when it comes to the EU. And we're starting to see what amounts to an effort to cancel um, Viktor Orban and his uh, potential to to take on this role because of fears of what he might do with it. And it's, you know, it's reminiscent um, to me in some way with the challenge that's going on in the United States and what happens when candidates who uh, don't respect democratic norms nevertheless uh, are able to benefit from them um, by uh, by being in office and potentially cause some pretty significant unintended consequences. Mm. Uh, finally, a, a really great story. It's being reported widely. This is the New York Times take on, well, about somebody that comes into your house and tidies up secretly. <laughs> Tell us more. This is the Welsh tidy mouse, and <laughs> anyone who who's seen the film Ratatouille will will kind of have an image in their minds, or even the the borrowers, uh, sorry, the you know the rescuers, these kind of anthropomorphized mice. But what's incredible is that a Welsh wildlife photographer observed that almost every night, without fail, his shed was tidied. I'd like to, you know, I'd like to make this happen in my house uh, at night, of course. And he's being a a Welsh wildlife photographer, he set up a a night camera and recorded a mouse that didn't just move things about, but picked them up and put them in a little drawer um, and, and henceforth had the nickname Welsh tidy mouse and you know it's it's wonderful the new york times story has a clip that you can see um the the animal behavior explanation for this doesn't appear to be um altruism or a desire to to help the 75 year old um wildlife photographer and retiree but rather uh finding interesting things to to build a nest with Uh, but nevertheless it is absolutely charming and i'm sure we'd all like to have our own welsh tidy mouse at home totally (laughs) tina fordham thank you very much indeed now here's what else we're keeping an eye on today Canada, Britain, Sweden and Ukraine formally complained to the UN Aviation Council on Monday in their bid to hold Iran accountable for the downing of a passenger airline in January 2020 that killed 176 people. Iran says its Revolutionary Guards accidentally shot down the Boeing 737 jet and blamed a misaligned radar and an error by the air defence operator at a time when tensions were high between Tehran and Washington. German farmers kicked off a week of nationwide protests against subsidy cuts yesterday, blocking roads with tractors and piling misery on Chancellor Olaf Schulz's coalition as it struggles to fix a budget mess and contain rising far-right forces. The far-right AFD party, hoping for major gains in a string of state elections this year, backs the protest, using it as proof of Germans' dissatisfaction with current leadership. And Bhutan began voting today in the final round of national parliamentary elections that will form the Himalayan Kingdom's fourth government since democracy was established 15 years ago, with economic growth the main issue in the wake of COVID-19. Both main parties contesting share similar views on harnessing the country's potential for hydroelectric power, boosting agricultural growth and minimising climate change risks in the world's first carbon-negative country. 
This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. It's 7.31 in Lisbon, that's 8.31 in Zurich. Now, Portugal is headed to the polls in just nine weeks after a snap election was triggered due to the resignation of outgoing Socialist Prime Minister Antonio Costa. Since then, all parties have entered campaign mode, with the past couple of days seeing the Socialist Party conference setting the pledges for a new government on the left. And on the right, opposition parties announced a formal pre-election coalition. So... Where does this leave the race and what can we expect on March the 10th? Well, I'm joined by Monocle's senior foreign correspondent, Carlotta Rabello, in the studio now. Good morning to you, Carlotta. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, tell us about the current ruling party, the Socialists. They had their party conference this weekend. What did we learn? Yes, yeah, so they uh, essentially formalised Pedro Nuno Santos as their new leader, who is replacing outgoing Prime Minister Antonio Costa. Um, now, the w- Santos won the support last month month of around 62% of party members. He is seen as someone who's more on the left wing of the party. And he is quite young. He is a 46-year-old man. Traditionally, Portuguese leaders have been a bit older. Uh, so there is uh, a lot of buzz around his candidacy and his leadership about what this renewed um, sense of leadership that he could bring to the country if elected prime minister. Now, one of the main pledges he made at the party conference was bids to increase the minimum wage and boost uh, the economic competitiveness of the country uh, and this is through investing in selective sectors. Um, the Portuguese um, uh, current government uh, of pr- uh, Socialist Prime Minister Antonio Costa has fallen due to this investigation over the government's handling of lithium, hydrogen and da- data centre projects. So in the investment in specific sectors needs to be handled correctly going forward mm. so that similar issues don't happen. Now, um, Pedro Nuno Santos uh, also mentioned the crisis in healthcare and the ongoing crisis in housing. As we know, Portugal uh, has seen house prices soar over the past uh, couple of years, uh, triggered to, of course, a big push during the pandemic years to get people to move to Portugal and sadly suffering the side effects of that now. So the there are a, a lot of issues that people are really grappling with. The cost of living is going up. Uh, they had introduced safeguarding measures as reduce. One of them was to reduce tax on essential goods in supermarkets such as bread, olive oil. And, you know, uh, there was a whole basket of uh, food that was tax um, uh, tax free um, when you pay it, uh, sh- the shopping tax. But now that has come out of effect at the beginning of this year. So there are questions about what does that mean, not only for retailers, but for consumers going forward and what measures a new government might put in place to ease that burden. Uh, and so what's the reaction from the general public being to this? It's it's mixed. Uh, you have uh, uh, a lot of optimistic uh, people, those of who are tend to support left or centre-left governments. They are optimistic about Pedro Nuno Santos' candidacy precisely because of this uh, breath of fresh air that he brings. Even though he has been a minister before, uh, this is not someone that, you know, is a career politician in the sense of having been in government for 20, 30 years and almost the culmination of the career is prime minister and then they retire. If he does get elected, there is still a lot that he can do afterwards and there's a lot of hope in that and also being of a younger generation 
that grew up post-dictatorship, uh, was born in democracy. Um, it's quite significant. Uh, our, Portugal has been a democracy for 50 years. It's going to be 50 years this year since the fall uh, of the dictatorship. So it is quite important that you have someone in the race that was born after it. Mm. Um, but of course, then you have on the right, uh, this is the, the fact that Antonio Costa's government, um, you know, fall fell in disgrace, basically, and the snap election was triggered, has given momentum to the right. This is both the opposition party, PSD, the Social Democrats, but also the far right is rising, not to the point of becoming government, but to the point that they might become kingmakers if a right-wing government depends on a coalition. Mm. And the Social Democrats just want to do that, don't they? Exactly. They announced this pre-electoral alliance with another right-wing party, CDS, which that party is a historic Portuguese party that but basically got wiped out at the last elections and uh, they don't have any representation at the moment. And there's been criticism of this alliance, even though PSD and CDS have done coalitions and pre-electoral alliances in the past. But the fact that the party was almost uh, voted out of existence and their ethos is to return Portugal to the monarchy. And PSD is a Republican party. So they've a a party that you know, once a republic, so that's a presidential system, has an alliance with a party whose sole purpose is to destroy the republic. So there's a lot of questioning of the thinking here. However, um, critics and experts on the right say that this alliance is the best chance if the opposition wants to become government of doing so without depending on the far right. Carlotta, thank you very much indeed. That was Monocle's senior foreign correspondent, Carlotta Rabello. And this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. With the world currently wracked by a multitude of geopolitical challenges, a new report by the Stockholm-based Global Challenges Foundation aims to focus on how all of these problems intersect and what our creaking global governance structures, like the United Nations, can do about them. Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, spoke about the report with Richard Gowan, UN Director at the International Crisis Group, who began by giving his impressions of the state of global governance today. Well, I think we have to be honest that some of the existing global governance structures we have do look pretty creaky. I sit in New York, I watch the UN Security Council for a living, and it's a pretty depressing Institution to watch right now. We've seen the council fail over Ukraine. We've seen the council fail over Gaza in the last couple of weeks. Equally, I don't think that anyone who works on climate change thinks that the current UN climate process is really fit for purpose. I mean, the discussions amongst diplomats are just falling behind the reality of the effects of global warming. So we do need to think about new global governance structures. We have to be honest, this is not a great moment to do that because <laughs> the world is very divided and very competitive. But you know, the report is an effort to try and make people rethink the situation. And there is one hook that it relates to, which is next September, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, is going to host a rather grandly titled event called the Summit of the Future. And what Guterres is hoping to do is get leaders to come together and talk about not individual problems, but the need to overhaul the international system more broadly. 
Do you have thoughts on what different or reformed supranational structures could look like? Because don't you keep running up against the same thing which hobbles the UN Security Council, which is that you have several antagonistic powers which all have the ability and the right to shut down anything the UNSC wants to do. Wouldn't you need to get those all to agree on anything different? You would. And look, I've worked on UN reform on and off for the best part of 20 years. And I I would like quite a lot of that time back because (laughs) it's a very frustrating business. And it's very easy to tell people what the technocratic answers are. It's much harder to see what the political answers are. I mean, I think the first message before you get into the technical details of reform is that we need to find some renewed sense of collective political will to deal with these problems. International institutions struggle not just because of their structures, but also because states don't invest in them. What we're seeing at the moment is that states are investing less in bodies like the UN. Everyone is very focused on domestic issues or questions like migration. And so the first step is to try and get countries to recognize that we do face global problems. They do have to be dealt with at the global level. And everyone needs to put a bit more energy into making the systems to deal with global problems work. If you had that degree of political will, then you could get on to changing the way decisions are made at UN climate summits so that they don't always hang on consensus, for example, which is a debilitating problem. Technical questions are secondary. Where do you think that dwindling of willingness to invest comes from? Is it just a certain amount of complacency? Because obviously, the peak moments for bodies like this, the United Nations and its predecessor organisation, the League of Nations, were in the immediate aftermath of absolutely hideous global calamities. And though the years since World War II have not been necessarily smooth sailing all the way. We've gone a decent stretch without such a disaster since then. I think that's right. I think that one of the reasons that maybe there there hasn't been such political attention to the existential threat of nuclear weapons is exactly that for 30 years, a nuclear exchange seemed very unlikely. And it's only really been in the last couple of years that the threat of atomic warfare has come back up the agenda. I think there's also a reality, which is we've lived through you know, a global shock in the form of COVID-19, but a global shock that has led a lot of politicians to turn inwards. And you know, if you look around Europe, if you look at the US, you know, we can see that leaders such as Rishi Sunak or Joe Biden are in their different ways, you know, really trying to deal with domestic economic problems. They're not always thinking globally. And so the structures of global governance are getting less attention because there is a tendency to focus on what's urgent and you know on the doorstep back home. I just want to return finally to that summit of the future that you mentioned earlier, in which the report does throw ahead to quite significantly. What strike you as, and I realise there may not be a short answer to this question, but what strike you as the most absolutely urgent priorities if we're trying to have a serious conversation about what the next few decades of human endeavour are going to look like? Well, there's no shortage of topics to discuss, and there is a risk that an event at the UN gets bogged down in bickering over long-standing issues like Security Council reform. But I think that probably the most important 
challenge at the summit and more generally is to work out how to get more progress on climate diplomacy. I think that Antonio Guterres is also bringing some very interesting questions to the table, pointing out that the UN doesn't have proper mechanisms for dealing with new technologies like AI or biotech, which some experts believe could also create existential risks down the road. And then there is the overall collapse of the arms control agenda. And there is, a, I think, a fairly urgent need to start to talk about how we rebuild arms control in a period of intensified competition between the US, Russia and China. So those are three topics I would love to see leaders actually take more seriously. Are we going to find all the answers to these problems in one summit over two days in New York in September, just before the US presidential elections? <laughs> Probably not. But it is at least, I think, uh, it's one of those hook moments in diplomacy where you can concentrate attention on big picture questions. And, and that's what our report is trying to do. And that's what the summit will hopefully do on a bigger scale. That was Richard Gowan speaking with Andrew Muller. You're with Monocle Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Time now to talk aviation with Murdo Morrison, who joins us on the line now. Murdo, many thanks for coming on the show. Let's talk about the uh, Boeing story. More bad news for them. They've had a company-wide safety meeting triggered by Friday's mid-air blowout aboard this this, uh, 737 MAX plane. Uh, Tell us what the latest is on this story. Well, this is a, a never-evolving story, and the, flat, the, the facts are slowly emerging. There's a deep investigation underway by the, the National Transportation Safety uh, uh, Body in, um, in the States. And they've, the, the latest um, development is that they've discovered some uh, fractures in the, in the door that fell uh, from, the, from the aircraft and landed in somebody's back garden. Um, so they are looking at that at the same time, two of the users of this aircraft, Alaska itself, which is the uh, airline that was affected, and United Airlines, which is the biggest user of the, uh, of the, of the, the, the MAX 9 with this particular feature, um, have found uh, some um, loose bolts in uh, the doors of other aircraft. So this is all a little bit worrying. Uh, it obviously comes at... Uh, the worst possible time. It's the worst possible start uh, to the year for Boeing, which has been, uh, you know, really struggling to recover from the the max grounding and other problems that they've uh, they've been really having since uh, since before COVID. And then coupled with COVID and the the difficult recovery with cope from COVID with with supply chain problems and everything, it you know it's it's just another crisis on top of existing crisis. 
And and Murdo, we were hoping to recover and and have a better 2024. Is this, I mean, obviously Boeing is a, a, a blame to this for, for in some degree, but what about the suppliers? I understand that the uh, uh, Spirit Aero Systems was, is one of the plane makers' biggest suppliers. They actually built that door panel that blew out. So this is going to burgeon. I mean, this is going to involve more than just Boeing. Absolutely. And this is one of the things that the investigators and the FAA will be will be looking at closely uh, because if this, if this turns out to be uh, something that was... Uh, created at at Spirit Aerosystems, which is a main aerostructure supplier for Boeing. It used to be part of Boeing, was spun off about 20 years ago, and is now an independent company. But Boeing is obviously its its biggest customer. It's a huge company in Kansas. Um, And if it it emerges that this was sort of some kind of faulty uh, workmanship or uh, faulty uh, processes or checking or anything at the factory. Yes, of course, Boeing has to has to take responsibility for that as well, uh, because ultimately it's Boeing's aircraft. But uh, yes, they, they, you know nothing has nothing has come out of this yet, so we have to be a bit careful uh, about pointing fingers. But uh, that potentially. Would be would be very very bad news for Spirit Aerosystems. Mm. Uh, Murdo, we've just time for a very quick look at the fact that this is already the second major safety incident of this year after the Tokyo Haneda uh, runway incursion. Uh, just uh, tell us what the latest is on that. Yeah, I mean it's been. I, I mean investigations still uh, going on on that. I mean that's a miracle in, in many a miracle or a testament to the the, the, the very sort of. Uh, Great safety procedures on the on the airline that they managed to get all the passengers uh, off that aircraft in a very very short space before the 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 fire really took hold. Obviously, a tragedy and that lives were lost on the other aircraft. Um, this will be a long investigation. Uh, they will have to look at uh, what the pilot of the smaller aircraft was was doing, whether that uh, made a runway incursion. You know. Still, lots and lots to uh, to find out uh, on that investigation. Uh, and I understand there's a problem finding the the black box. Yes, uh, that that is uh, that is a bit of a problem, but not not so much because in this incident they've got all the radio recordings. Obviously, the crew uh, of the uh, of the A three fifty have uh, have survived. Uh, you know, they they will be able to piece mm. this one together. I would I would imagine pretty easily. Murdo, thank you very much indeed for joining us. That's Murdo Morrison there. And this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. There is less than a week to go until the World Economic Forum's annual meeting at Davos. In attendance, there'll be over 100 governments, all major international organisations and a thousand of the most important global companies represented. For a flavour of what you can expect, Monocle Radio Deputy Head of Radio Tom Webb and producer Christy O'Grady sat down in the studio earlier to discuss our plans for this year's summit. We are now just six days away from Davos, the World Economic Forum, which will be taking place from Monday. And Monocle Radio will be sending our best team up the mountain, including Christy O'Grady, who joins me in the studio. Your first time to Davos, but you are no stranger to a world forum, are you? No, Tom. Thanks for the introduction. I regularly attend conferences mainly around Europe with the Foreign Desk team, mainly on defence and security issues. This will be my first economic forum. But not your first freezing cold forum. 
No, luckily I had some practice in uh, Iceland last October. However, I reckon Iceland was a hell of a lot warmer than Davos is going to be next week. That is correct, because there is a cold snap coming. We're expecting icy roads, which is why we'll be taking the train. And also because I remember last year, too many electric cars hadn't really thought about the idea of going up a mountain on an icy road. So every morning we will be there taking the train. Three of us, Carlotta Rabello, who you heard from, earlier on The Globalist will be based inside the Ring of Steel along with the world leaders and Christy and I will be wandering the streets going into the many houses of Davos. These are the buildings that are taken up by not only countries but also ideas including AI. We will see the first house of AI. AI is going to be one of the biggest topics that we can expect at the forum, including how AI is going to change the shape of healthcare, as well as transport and also city living. Now, energy is also something we're expecting a lot from. Last year, the carbon crowd received what I can only describe as a warm reception as the renewable industry did rub shoulders with big oil executives. We had Greta Thunberg outside, who I exclusively interviewed for 30 seconds, if you can remember that. And of course, looming in the background is the The global elections, there are 2 billion people going to vote across 50 countries. The first is going to be Taiwan, which will be a couple days ahead of the forum. Now, I spoke to Rana Mitter from Oxford University about just how significant this vote is going to be. While the outcome of the election is important, it's not existential. In other words, if the DPP wins, if uh, Lai Jingde, William Lai wins, then he's likely to carry on the current policy, which is basically saying that, in a sense, Taiwan is autonomous. There's no need for Taiwan to declare independence formally. And I think it's very unlikely he'd do that, not least because the US would uh, be on the phone basically saying, under no circumstances should you do this. And therefore, he wouldn't be triggering the red line, which China has always said would launch potentially a, a conflict. But he'd say, in a sense, that Taiwan keeps its autonomy and that, in a sense, I think that he's happy to have some sort of interaction with the mainland. I think the DPP would say that it's the mainland that refuses to actually talk to Taiwan. If there were to be a victory for one of the other two leading candidates, uh, Mr. Ho of the KMT or Dr. Kerr of the TPP, I think Beijing would think that there was a more immediate pathway to start some sort of dialogue with them. They have never said that they'd refuse to talk to the KMT, which, of course, is the old Civil War enemy back from the 1940s. But both parties have changed considerably since then. The, The CCP, the communists on the mainland, nationalists on the island of Taiwan. And the TPP candidate, a bit of a dark horse, but uh, Dr. Kerr, Professor Kerr, as he's known, Professor K, is also someone who it's thought Beijing would at least open lines to. So in that sense, we either have, you know, more of the same in the short term, or we have potentially slightly more dialogue with China. So optimism there that the election is not going to derail proceedings in Davos. However, an insider who's organising the event has spoken to me that an election that has already happened could cause havoc up in the mountains. Now, he said that if Malay's version, this is Javier Malay in Argentina, of course, if his version of punk libertarianism catches on, it may inspire other voters around the world to throw off the burden of high-tax, inefficient, big-state bureaucracies unleashing what he describes as a wave 
of Hayek quoting radicals. So there we are. That's something that we should be thinking about while we're there. Now, Christy, we said it's your first time. What are you thinking about? What are you looking forward to? Well, first of all, as we gave in our exposition at the top of the chat, I have been to conferences before with the Foreign Desk. A lot of the time, we are just chock-a-block, full-on interview, schedule. I rarely get a chance to watch any of the talks. So this time, I'm actually really looking forward to watching, being part of the conversation, and then catching up with the people speaking once they have said their piece. I'm also actually quite looking forward to the Politico party, This year, we're going to be getting our ears to the ground, getting the gossip from the sidelines. And Politico, from what I understand, they're the guys where you can get the best info. Are you thinking A-listers or are you thinking A-listers from the world of journalism? Oh, absolutely the world of journalism. Yeah, I won't be able to talk to any of my friends about this when I go home. Well, neither did I last year. And in fact, last year, a lot of the chat that was happening in Davos didn't actually happen, which raises questions about the significance and impact of the World Economic Forum. There was lots of concern about the spring offensive with Ukraine. What if Russia wins the war? There was a lot of chat about the global recession that didn't happen. It still could happen this year. There was also talk about threats to job from AI, which we haven't seen in the numbers as predicted. And we are seeing the start of a move away from a Eurocentric agenda, which has dominated proceedings there for many, many years. India driving this change, the House of India making up most of the real estate there, and they've already announced their delegates, which is very unusual, over a 100 big names that they are sending. Now, we mentioned the House of India. Christy, do you know which house you will be based in or you'll be visiting? visiting, knocking on the doors next week. Yeah, I think I'm going to be keeping a close eye on the House of Ukraine and the House of Switzerland. Unfortunately, Ukraine have not released their agenda yet, keeping us on our toes. So I eagerly anticipate the release. But House of Switzerland, very interesting. This year, they're following the line of uh, the WEF, exploring the opportunities offered by technologies, but also their implications. We've looked at that heavily on the foreign desk last year. So I'm really interested to see a wider conversation about it. They will be celebrating 160 years of the diplomatic relations between Japan and Switzerland, which, as a representative of Monaco, I am excited about. And also, they're going to be talking about uh, one of the talks that I'm very interested in, is building connectivity to break the digital divide. And it's about making sure the developing world doesn't get left behind in a world that is so dependent on technology, but yet not sacrificing generation of finance at the same time. So hopefully I'll be able to talk to Jenny Lindqvist from the uh, Ericsson Europe and Latin America division. And all of your insight, all of your sideline chats will be available on Monocle Radio. That's the briefing Monday to Friday next week. It's the only place you'll need to go for all of your information from the mountains. We look forward to broadcasting to you there and we look forward to meeting you there if you'll be in Davos next week. Monocle's Tom Webb and Christy O'Grady there. 
And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Vincent McAvenny, Tom Webb and Monica Lillis, our researcher, Nioma Ekwe, and our studio engineer, Christy O'Grady. After the headlines, there's more music on the way and we'll also be hearing Meet the Writers. Now, today it features Lydia Sangren. She's a Swedish psychologist. She spent 10 years writing her debut novel. Uh, it won the prestigious August Prize. It sold more than 100,000 copies. And what I find really interesting about it is that she modelled the writing on her favourite musician from the E Street Band. So she was trying to write sort of alongside this musician, which I thought was quite extraordinary. Uh, the briefing's coming out. We'll be looking at that uh, resignation of Elizabeth Bourne, the French Prime Minister, and of course, following on on that Boeing 737 Max story. The briefing is live at midday in London and the Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>